Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Designing Futures. This is Angela Ye, career coach, talent strategist, design recruiter, and public speaker, and founder of Ye Ideology. Last week, we heard Bob Schwartz and Alistair Hamilton discuss the nuances of leading design in enterprise-scale corporations, corporations that have had extensive history investing in design and now have massive design teams. They talked about the responsibility that comes with leading design and mentoring the next generation of design leaders. To quote Bob Schwartz, our job as teachers is to bring forward the people behind us. The most gratifying thing as a leader is knowing once you leave a position and someone from your organization steps into that role because you help them get to that point. In this week's episode, we'll listen to the panel discussion from the Design Summit featuring Sarah Keating and Farrell Cabrisi, moderated by Sean Bender. They discuss how to champion sustainability and corporate social responsibility within their companies. Good morning, Angela. I'm really excited to be able to moderate this panel. It's uh, not only a topic that I'm really interested in and is really close to my heart, but uh, obviously it's also a great opportunity to talk to Farrell and Sarah. So Farrell Calgris is a uh, courageous design leader with nearly 17 years of experience. She is deeply passionate about maximizing the potential of people and organizations that surround her. She hopes to leave a legacy for purpose-driven companies by inspiring those she works with to reimagine business, operations, and human capital as we know it, resulting in an inclusive future that allows all of us to thrive socially, ecologically, and economically. She's the Global Sustainability Manager and Strategic Innovations Lead at Eastman. So thank you very much for being here, Farrell. Also, I would like to say a fun fact about you that you shared is that when you're not at work, she's adventuring out in the wilderness with her husband and kids and her doodle dog, which is a weird thing I never thought I would be saying today, and uh, enjoying every fun activity that she can do outdoors that she loves. So thank you for being here, Farrell. And I'd also like to bring up Sarah Keating. She's a true 21st century Renaissance woman. Sarah is one part leader, one part business owner, two parts design obsessive, and three parts brand builder. That's gonna, that little, is a little bit of a reference to some of her fun facts later on, but what she is amazing at is translating consumer insights into iconic brands and stories that drive consumer desire. Her insatiable curiosity drives surprisingly obvious brand experiences and products. Sarah helps the world's most recognized companies and brands break through to consumers. She has hired, mentored, and motivated design teams across disciplines and regions, and she has led teams in the trenches on both client and agency sides. Uh, Sarah's fun fact, as I mentioned, a little bit of a teaser. Besides leading design, Sarah has worked as a journalist, architectural glass artist, and here we go, bartender. So a very <laughs> exciting list of things in your background, Sarah. I always love kind of getting that little peek into people's lives outside of design. So thank you both for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> oh, please, the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's get into the conversation at hand. So sustainability and corporate social responsibility um, in many ways are two halves of the same coin and, and can also mean very different things just based on the organization that are in. So um, why don't we go ahead and just really dig into that. And Sarah, why don't we start with you? So in these separate corporate contexts, uh, what does this idea of sustainability and corporate social responsibility mean? Yeah, so great question. So at Philips, for example, our purpose, of course, is part of it is sustainability, but our purpose is really to improve people's health and well-being by caring for the health of people 
also the planet, and that's where sustainability obviously comes in, and our employees. And all three are things that we work towards on a day-to-day basis and making sure that we are improving the health of people via patients, our hospital systems, our uh, personal care products, our sustainability with high high environmental and social governance standards. We make sure we do that. And then for employees, we make sure that we have a diverse, sorry, and inclusive workplace um, so that we enable the best conversations and the best work for the people who work with us. So it's really spanning those three pieces. And Farrell, same question. Yeah, so for us, um, totally similar. I would say that we um, are a materials innovation company, right? Some of you guys might know Eastman and work with us in the past. Um, but more than that, I like to think of us as a people company as well. And so kind of marrying that corporate social responsibility and that impact uh, through environmental and social action. Um, you know, we serve stakeholders kind of holistically, right? You think about employees, we have 14,500 globally uh, that we have to take care of. So when we think about that also, you know, that inclusion and diversity, especially that inclusion piece, we can't have diverse global teams without having them truly have a voice and be seen at the table. Um, so we really think that that workforce is what's going to enable us to conquer our big goals and our key impact areas. Um, and when you think about what those are and really what the world needs as we're going to have 10 billion people on earth, you know, in, by 2030, um, that produces a lot more waste. That waste can produce in the manufacturing of all the stuff that we're all creating. Um, that's going to have a climate impact. So our company, from a sustainability standpoint, is really looking to mitigate climate change, um, mainstream the circular economy, as well as care for society. So think about those societal needs and how do we innovate most for those. And actually, uh, kind of going on the coattails of that particular answer, Farrell, I'm just curious, um, how did you, like what sequence of events led to you becoming a champion of sustainability in Eastman, like how did you get to this point of basically spearheading a lot of these efforts and sort of helping to promote it throughout the corporation? Yeah, great question. Um, My career zigged and zagged, um, maybe a little bit building on the last conversation. Um, You know, I have some, the foundation of my career is probably founded in leadership. I actually started my career as a division one rowing coach. So maybe that's another fun fact. So I won't go through our whole history, but I've had communications roles. I've had innovation roles. Um, I led the innovation lab for Eastman for a long time after Galen White left. Um, So that's really where my connection with the design community came in. Um, I'm a Northern California girl at heart, uh, living in Florida. So maybe some of those values have been instilled for a long time, but I've always seen how, um, you know, I guess sustainability for me is kind of the balance and the long-term view of things, right? So just caring for things so that they'll always be here in the future Um, and future-minded. So I think the culmination of my past experiences really led me to the sustainability team at Eastman um, and getting to work on some high-impact projects. And Sarah, I'm also curious, like, how has your background similarly led in this direction of, you know, either sustainability and corporate responsibility and how have yeah. you taken steps as well? So, yeah, good question. It's um, it's really as with as when I started and I talked about our brand purpose, right? So that's how I've how I've arrived at this spot, and really embracing the purpose of impacting lives and doing that in the in in a way that um, 
obviously helps the company to grow and helps people to grow and uh, delivers in the best way on things like sustainability. So um, I think a great example is uh, thinking about current COVID-19 pandemic and thinking about the some of the shifts that are happening in healthcare moving from, you know, every, you know if you need care going into a hospital, right? If you, if you need to go visit a doctor, you're going to um, a clinic over here, and then you may be going to another clinic to get scanned, and then going into a hospital for a procedure. Well, that's an incredibly carbon intense um, process, not only from the movement, but if you think about hospitals and hospital systems, in themselves are incredibly wasteful and for good reason, right? We need to be protected and be cleaning and, and things like that. So the shift to telehealth and remote monitoring um, helps us to be more sustainable and to help people in a way that better impacts their lives, right? So to move away from that expensive, heavy footprint hospital, which is very waste dependent, to something that fits into a patient's life, right? So for me, the the, the you know the way I've come come to this place is, um, I guess it's about empathy and it's about caring and it's about I'd even say radical empathy, right? So radical empathy along the chain, so from for the company, for the employees, for the patient and making sure that we are talking and embracing all of that. I love that radical empathy. <laughs> yes, it deserves a clap or a round of applause. Designing Futures is brought to you by Yay Ideology, a talent strategy firm with a mission to help companies partner with the best design talent through corporate consulting and recruitment. But Sarah, you also kind of uh, really made me think of something, definitely one of the things that have come about through uh, the, obviously the pandemic, um, but also a little bit of my personal experience kind of coming to this. My mother is a uh, oncology nurse. And so one of the things she's certainly talking about uh, to the point you made, Sarah, is how like waste impact, waste driven a lot of like hospital work is. And so I think you two can offer some interesting perspectives on this idea of, um, with hospitals having to consume so many materials, producing so much waste, are there choices, are there actions, are there technologies that we can put in place that can help us start to address this? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm here in Chicago and definitely during the pandemic, one thing I constantly see, I see, you know, uh, uh, PPE, PPE masks just randomly on the street sometimes. And so as I'm starting to think like more people are using it, it's having a better impact. Um, what are things we need to start doing and what are things possibly in the pipeline that we can begin to do? I'll jump in. Please. So I, I think it's, um, it's really that design is evolving and continuing to evolve beyond the craft of design. We're talking about that a little bit earlier with, I think Bob was talking about, you know, becoming more of a business owner as you increasing your career or, or, try, or doing different disciplines within design, right? But it's also the systemic design. So thinking about how do we encompass the entire cycle end to end, right? By thinking systemically. So thinking about the service design, thinking about your um, ergonomically sound product, you know, it's also thinking about the end of life, uh, designing products that can be repaired, which is which is almost a shift because we were moving towards more of a disposable society. If I think of say our consumer products division, you know, we want people to buy more shavers. So, you know, maybe not that 
Philips would ever do this, but, you know, building end of life into the product. But instead of doing that, think about how might we extend the life of a product. So for example, in Western Europe, we have a, a program going for IPLs, which is um, laser hair removal, right? That you can, instead of buying a device, you can rent the device and then it's returned and it's properly cleaned and it can go on to another person. Or thinking, so thinking about, you know, or how might things be repaired? And then of course, also thinking about des and designing for the end of life of the product that you're thinking about how it can be reused in the future at the at the first point. So it's really thinking about that entire life cycle on, on, from, a, from a product and also um, from a usability standpoint. Yeah, and I would love to build on that and even take it further from our perspective, right? So we're a materials company and the same concept, right? But 80, I think the Ellen MacArthur Foundation says about 80% of the world's waste and pollution is designed in, right? So again, not only just thinking about that on the surface, but thinking about how things are made, what materials are you using? Um, thinking about the system of that material, right? Can you lower your footprint? What are your expectations of that footprint um, at the beginning of life? Are you using recycled content? Are you using biological raw materials? At the end of the life, do you want those materials to compost? Do you want them to be biodegradable? Do you want them to live on in value? Um, so I think, and, and one of the, the strongest reasons why I love to stay connected to the design community is there's such an opportunity for the designers to really start to think about this system, like you were saying, Sarah, and um, really take it forward. And I know the materials and processes classes aren't your favorite, like in college, like I know that that isn't one of those expertise areas, but I think as we go into the future, that's gonna become a lot more interesting because the choices that you guys make at the beginning of that design process have a huge impact, right? So um, if anyone wants to help me get materials and processes to be like way cooler in college, I would welcome uh, your chats <laughs> after. <the> <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. Job. It's about the materials, but it's also, it's also about our business systems as well. Absolutely. So it's certainly about the materials. So to use another example that we're doing here at Phillips, is think about our monitoring business in the past. So we would sell, you know, to a hospital or hospital system, X number, call it a hundred um, monitors, many more than that actually. And that would have an end of life of maybe six or seven years, right? Well, we're shifting to an as a service model, right? Yeah. So thinking about how, how might we place in hospitals monitors that are fitting within a larger ecosystem. So as they need repair, they're swapped out for repair as opposed to being thrown out or put into a dungeon somewhere and buying something new. So really thinking about how our businesses can affect even the way the products are designed, hey puppy, and, uh, <laughs> and, and how they're used over time and how, and how people interact with them, of course, is incredibly important as well. Yeah, I totally agree with the business model aspect. I think that's another area of, you know, design that that type of thinking and bringing forward those ideas. I mean, industries are ripe for that and are transforming. And I think just building even on what was said earlier, it's solving those big, hairy problems. I think maybe Bob said that, right? Um, and doing that, you know, with a high level of integrity, you know, so like, 
not trying to use it as necessarily a market differentiator, but like, how do you really start to manage sustainable businesses going forward? And that becomes your competitive advantage, right? You're locked in for the future versus at today's note of just, oh, you know, I think sustainability used to be even five years ago, oh, I can differentiate my product in the market because I've got this label on it, or it has, you know, maybe a 1% of materials. So I get to kind of talk about it as natural, but nobody knows what natural means. There's a lot more transparency happening across the board, across all products. Um, and so really thinking about that and thinking holistically kind of the begin, you know, the way that we like to frame it out is kind of beginning of life, what are things made out of end of life? What's happening at the end of their life? You know, their footprint, how do we, um, you know, mitigate that? How do we lower the water we're using, the carbon we're using? Um, and then again, like caring for society, coming back to that piece, our innovations, our creations, they have to serve society of an exponentially growing population. Like 10 billion people on earth is not like some small impact level. And that is exponentially growing, right? So the impacts of everything we said before, as we serve a growing population, we have got to, I think someone else said that, redesign everything right now. And COVID in 2020, I think, whether it's environmental justice issues, social justice issues, um, you know, any of the impacts about that globally just show how we're more, you know, linked versus ranked, really, you know, like how can we all come together and really tackle these problems? And I think that's a, a really interesting perspective on it because a lot of it just uh, comes down to like how we look at the impact of what our process has, right? Um, somewhat relating back, uh, uh, I asked that question about licensing earlier on. And uh, one of the things Bob said was like, oh, you know, architects, it's for like building quality and stuff like that. And in a parallel way, I see that as like as designers, a lot of these just sort of basic stylistic choices or material choices can have drastic impacts on the environment. Uh, you know, as a designer, you know, many of us, like, let's say we have a remote control, you know, client from a TV and it's like, oh, we're gonna make it at ABS, just regular old ABS, throw it out. And it's a throwaway thing. It's a common thing. It's a safe choice, but that can create hundreds of millions of pounds of waste. There's also the greenhouse impacts of producing that. It's a simple choice that has a huge impact later on. And I think it's an interesting discussion that a lot of designers need to have more of. And kind of in that vein, Sarah and Farrell, I wonder what are steps you have taken to integrate those questions, to integrate that far reaching thought process in the you know, roles that you currently serve in? Yeah, so certainly within packaging, we, we talk about this and constantly. <laughs> so in, in even like, if can if we think about things like, can we, um, have one common package, which is made out of a highly sustainable material like pulp, right? Wood pulp. And then, but then create it in a modular way, right? So you can put different devices into it. And then it maybe it goes into more of a wrapper, which if you're putting it in a retail environment, then you would have a retail kind of environment. And, but you don't, you only do it on a needs basis. So if it's going into Canada, it's got French and English. If it's going into Western Europe, it's got your eight languages. Or if it's going to be sent from Amazon, it's already in that um, uh, shipping box, right? So it's, it's, I can't think of the acronym right now, um, but it's, it, it, 
it's easy to open. It doesn't need to have the extra gloss and messaging and attractiveness that one might find is necessary in a retail environment. So thinking about it that way. And then from a product design, also thinking about it in terms of how do we design things that the obsolescence can be replaced? So is it you have an electric toothbrush and you know, you're just replacing the one piece and that extends the life the usable life of the overall product because you're just replacing the brush head. That's a that's a, you know a, a great example. But how do we take that into less expected areas, right? So obviously into um, blades and razors. That's obvious. But how do we take that into healthcare? How do we take that into other other areas of um, of what what we create and what we manufacture? And that, those are some of the exercises that we tend to go through and think about as we're developing and marketing products. Yeah, and I, I would say too, um, if we were to work with a design group, whether it's in a brand or even outside of a brand, you know, I, I get the question around like, okay, well, you choose that cheaper plastic, right? Because you also have some boxes that you're limited to and you're kind of designing within those parameters. Um, you know, what's going to make you a leader in the design profession is to get educated on the trade-offs, right? So you can build that story, right? So that education, that knowledge, and then that ability to tell the story of the full impact of your product, right? So you can paint a picture for what an ABS product could look like, and you can do some quick math and scale that over time. Um, or you could choose this other product, maybe made with a recycled content value of some sort, maybe it costs more per kg, great, it's gonna scale your product. But at the same time, look at how much waste is being mitigated, kept out of landfills and incineration, look how much fossil fuel is being left in the ground. Does that actually impact someone's corporate goals? You know, everybody has corporate goals around sustainable materials today, around climate impact. Um, so again, kind of understanding the different nodes of the hierarchy in which you're working, right? The business hierarchy, there's corporate level goals, there's KPIs at business levels and market segment levels. Um, how do you start to factor all of those in and learn that language of business like Bob and Alstar were talking about and tell that story and position something that you really believe in, you know, and, and take some ownership in believing in the product you're designing, right? Like, kind of have an altruistic view of this thing that you're creating and putting into the world, because that is the power I think design has. You guys have the ability to create new things and you guys have the ability to redesign the systems and the way we use things. Um, then you need to go work with the marketing team and get people to you know, value it at the consumer level, you know, which is a totally different end of the spectrum. But um, I think more and more our populations are looking for that valued-based, that purpose-based identification with products and brands. So again, if you can pull that story through in your product design, um, I think you turn heads and and you know your design gets noticed. It might not, you might not choose the more expensive material in that case, but um, you'll at least have educated the room. Thrive Today is brought to you by Thrive by Design a masterclass program designed to empower design professionals like you to unearth your highest potential, make exponential impact, master cultivating and landing opportunities, thus thriving in your career. Don't let the pinnacle of your career slip by. 
take ownership of your future now. To learn more about the program, head over to our website, thrivebydesign.today. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-B-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N dot T-O-D-A-Y. And uh, Eastman, as a slide plug, has some really interesting materials in that space that have different life cycles. Uh, I went to SCAD, so Eastman has done plenty of presentations of their cool new materials, so it's yeah. cool to see that. But Farrell, you bring up something really interesting about that bottom-up and top-down process of like how we actually get these things to affect our lives. And if I may just like share two uh, things that came to mind, um, and I'd like to hear both you and Sarah sort of how you break those down. And so for instance, I live in Chicago right now. And when it comes to recycling, Chicago single stream only takes paper, metal, and then recycle code one and two for plastics. And take a look at a lot of your food products. They're usually five, sometimes seven, maybe a six is thrown in there once in a while. That just goes in the garbage anyway. It's something that seems recyclable, but through various things, like in the case of the municipality of Chicago, completely unrecyclable. Or in some cases, there are packs um, that need to be recycled in a particular way. Yeah. And then that becomes something where, sure, the company can make a choice, but then there's also like government and municipal choices that affect it, in which case, where does the problem need to be solved? Um, in other cases, uh, this kind of maybe goes a little bit outside of the bounds of what we've been discussing, but in food, for instance, yeah. uh, palm oil, it's yeah. in tons of things. And if it's not sustainably sourced, it usually comes from massive deforestation. And if you look at a lot of foods you eat, it's all over the place. And so by eating that, you, you know, contribute to the idea that more of these plantations need to be made and therefore having greater impact on the entire process. And of course, globally, the destruction of rainforests. So my thought is, um, as designers, we're sort of like in the middle of this process. And what really makes the most sense to kind of start targeting as creative professionals? Do we try to go bottom up? Do we try to go top down? Are we limited in our choices? How do we think about this? Maybe I can start just because I feel like I have more of the infrastructural point of view, uh, perhaps. But, you know, I think that there's different value at different nodes, and you have to be curious enough. First, you have to be educated and knowledgeable, right? So you have to do the work. Um, and hopefully this is a, I hope, I would hope that this would be like a fun space of exploration uh, for the design community right now. Um, I also think that the term sustainability is so wide and broad um, that you kind of have to put it into drivers, right? So, you know, who cares about what and why? So if you have a client, learn that client really well, um, but then take that outside view in and really learn what the full value chain thinks about it, right? What are the regulations? Is it really fragmented? Like our recycling systems here in America, um, Europe, it might be a little bit more advanced, right? So the products that you make there could differ from here, Asia and China specifically, um, they can ramp up things really fast just because of the way their governments are organized. Um, they can also shut things down really fast. So, um, it is this, um, it, it is, there's regionalities. Um, Europe, I think, is leading the way and a lot of multinationals are not necessarily gonna produce regionalized products. Um, so you might um, design to the highest standard, if you will, and maybe that's the way to look at it. Um, and so I think, you know, you have to, to take all those considerations, but then you also have to understand and or move a consumer audience to value it, right? So um, 
how do you do that storytelling? What does, what is the marketing team's part in that? And I was talking with someone, I think it was from Electrolux and it, an idea struck me and I thought it was interesting and maybe Alistair could chime in on the chat. Um, but when you design for digital, you kind of have all people at the table and you design the product holistically. And I still find outside of that, we still seem to have these silos where, you know, I have this idea or brief or whatever, and we get specs in and then it kind of goes to this team and then it goes to this team. And it's still this very linear process. Um, I don't know if that's still very true in design or if that's changing, but what I would say is how do you get those levels together and start marrying those um, so that you're, you're finding value and delivering on everyone's kind of key performance indicators or goals across the board? Does that, does that quite answer it? No, I, th I think that's really there. And I think Sarah, you can certainly speak to that point of like this linear process of bringing everybody to the table, but I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the uh, previous statement before as well. Um, it's, it's an interesting question to think about. And, it, and I'd say, yes, it's changing. So <laughs> we are, or attempting to change. So thinking about how do we move to a more agile design workforce? So that's what we're doing at Phillips. Uh, we're actually doing a huge transformation of our whole design of more than 500 um, people working in design and thinking about how do we bring the more multifunctional design spaces so it isn't that waterfall process going from, okay, the product designer creates something and then they hand it off to the um, brand identity designer and then they hand it off to marketing. It's, you know, yes, that still is going to happen to a certain extent, but it's coming together and thinking differently and the, the original question that you were talking about, and Farrell, you, you touched on a few points that I thought were important, because it's not, it's not for me as much about the end of life, right? It's about how do we maybe not have the end of life? It's not about, do we make the same things out of different materials, right? It's how do we change the way we use things? And, I, and, and Sean, to your point, you know, is it not eating foods, making a personal commitment to not eat foods with um, palm oil? Is it eating organic, not only because it's better for our bodies, but guess what? It's better for the environment because we're not putting chemicals in, into the system. So there's a lot of there's a lot of design that goes beyond the physical product, I think is, is my point when we're thinking about sustainability and corporate, corporate goals and purpose. It's really, uh, it, we have to think about it differently and it can't just be about the product design. It's about how do we talk about it? How do we market it? So we're not in, consistently insisting that someone upgrade to a new product, right? So we're actually celebrating the fact that this is a quality product and you can repair it or you can buy supplies for it. So it's not necessarily only about the product design and the materials, but it's about the systems around it. And I think for me, that's, that's something that's very important. Yeah, and to build on that too, I think it's, you know, like, I don't know, and you could agree or disagree, Sarah, but I feel like five, 10 years ago, you know, corporations decided they had to have a, a brand purpose, you know, and we, we came out with these purpose statements, if you will, um, North Stars. I think now, we're catching up to them almost, right? And so we're starting to embody them. I think those were maybe visions and aspirations um, so that we could share a vision of the future of where we wanna go. Um, and as we're, 
as we've kind of cogged through that, we both come from really big companies, you know, now it's, it's walking the talk at an individual level. So when I talk about like the fact that Eastman has 14,500 employees, I really see us as activators of our corporate brand and purpose, right? And I do a lot internally to help channel that, train that, implement that across different functions, you know, not just business. I work with HR a lot. I work with our corporate social responsibility team. We've stood up new digital technologies to flatten even employee engagement globally, because typically it kind of sits in our headquarter building, you know. Um, so, you know, that transformation in business, I think, has to happen, but organizations have to teach it on an individual level. And we as humans have to start making choices. And sometimes those choices are harder, sometimes they're more expensive, because they're not habits yet, but there's trade offs for them. And we just have to know where we are on our own journeys, what our own personal values are, and, and really align ourselves and the products we use and buy um, with those. And I think brands will respond also. Yeah, and it's even about the way we're working. So instead, yeah. of, instead of getting having 10 people get on a plane and fly mm -hmm. to another country, mm -hmm. well, we're using Miro to run virtual workshops or mural, depending on who you are, right? So it's thinking, how, how might we work differently? Because that is also a huge impact. And so it's, it's thinking about that called the brand purpose and really living it as employees and as a company and, and, and bringing everything that we do to life through that lens. And so also uh, just in the last couple of minutes of this talk, I just want to also throw it out to the audience. Uh, please feel free to submit any questions. Angela has tossed one into the ring and I think it's worth discussing, especially where we are right now in this discussion. Um, but she was talking about, you know, we have IDSA, IXDA, DMI, uh, organizations about sustainability. They're out there, but obviously they're not part of that zeitgeist. You know, there's like um, the Cradle to Cradle Product Innovation Institute and the Center for Sustainable Design but it's one of those things where it's not talked about as much academically. I still feel like, especially as designers, when we talk about sustainable choices, it's usually in academic contexts more than it is outside in the real world. So I wonder if Farrell, Sarah, you could kind of speak to that as well. So in, in I don't know about the specific organizations. We are, say, in Philips and Design, we do have a team specifically charged to work on the circular economy and sustainability. So there are initiatives like that. However, my fear is, or sometimes the challenge is that if we say, okay, this organization takes care of it, or that team is responsible for sustainability, then I don't have to worry about it, right? So I think it's something that, when I say sustainability, I do mean, of course, more than that from the core responsibilities, but I think we all need to own it and live it and breathe it and do it. It's not saying, okay, that company or that team is going to take care of it because then it won't really happen. So that's my, my personal POV. Yeah, and I think of it too. So both corporately and individualistically, that's the word. Um, you know, I think it's, it's the culmination of marginal gains, right? So I think a lot of times we as society, it's, a, it's that big hairy problem we talked about. There's a lot of them within the context of sustainability and sometimes it's overwhelming. We know that that shuts you down as a human and then you have inaction, right? When things get too complex, then our brain kind of freaks out and was like, well, defense mechanism, I'm just not gonna do it um, or I'm not gonna learn it or, or whatever, right? Um, I think that we all have to just start somewhere, 
right? Because if you do one little action a day, whatever it is, let's just say you bring your reusable water bottle to work and you do that, other people see you doing that, you don't use the cups, well, over your lifetime, that's a big impact, right? There's a lot of resources that get to stay in the ground and a lot of waste that stays out of landfills and incinerators. Um, you know, so you can think about, start having those types of mindsets, even for yourself. Um, and then once it becomes habitual, you know, kind of pick something else. You get to eat fish on Friday instead of meat or um, be a casual vegan if you're more advanced, you know. Um, you know, those are, those are the kinds of things. And then as a corporation, I agree. So I, I do sit on that corporate sustainability team, but what we're doing is we're transforming ourselves into a center of excellence. And while we have responsibilities at the highest level of the corporation, um, where we do have to meet the very real goals that we have publicly stated, and we definitely have to meet the environmental targets that are out there globally for us. And we need to maintain the integrity that we have for all of our stakeholders um, not just investors, customers, employees, and communities we, we serve. We work with NGOs. Um, you know, there, there's a wide body of people that rely on us all the time, um, all throughout the supply chain. And so we have to maintain that workability there. Um, and as we translate that internally into our organization, it is what, you know, Sarah said, it's how do you start to make this a way of being, right? How do you model the way so that when you have new employees join, it already is? How do you maybe, um, for the older populations that maybe have lived life a certain way, how do you influence them again, just to make some of those small habitual changes? Um, and I think it becomes a culture shift over time and it takes, it takes intention um, is maybe the short answer of that. Agreed. <laughs> and so I wonder, like, uh, we've got like a couple minutes left. And so we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about a lot of actions people can take and how we need to maybe think broadly about our work. But one thing I'd like to maybe close with are what are those what are those walls? What are those gates that really stop these ideas, these mindsets from really becoming sort of bigger, more powerful movements in the world of design, but also just society in general, in, in some cases? <laughs> Obviously, you don't have to think that big, society overall. We can keep it a little bit smaller, but <laughs> what do we see as some of those gates or barriers? I think it's breaking old habits, right? So old financial models, and I think you can talk about personal habits and things like that, but you know, old financial models and the old ways of doing business and the old ways of thinking. So it's, I think Farrell had a really great point where you're taking steps. It's not, you don't have to eat the whole whale at once necessarily. You don't have to change the whole company, but how, you know, how do we step by step bring in and change, change the thinking models? Uh, and so it's, it's about, it's about shift. It's about changing. It's about having that radical empathy yeah. uh, for everyone and for, for the planet. Cause empathy really is radical. <laughs> <laughs> the kids know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you just dated yourself, Sean. <laughs> I know. Oh, everybody knows my age. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I think also infrastructure is hard. Um, Change is hard, but change in infrastructure, when you've got millions of dollars of steel and concrete in the ground um, and you are trying to think up new models of doing things um, that could be expensive capital, um, 
you have to get creative on how you solve those problems. And so again, I think, you know, linking, not ranking, it's, it's more about like those new business models, those, what problem are you trying to solve? And then who's uniquely positioned to solve for that? Um, finding those people, linking up, and then kind of making, making those changes as, as you can. Um, and lobby, you know, lobbying for those changes too, you know, because we have to transform some of our industries. And that is, that's going to provide opportunity on one side and it's going to shift uh, opportunities on a different side. Well, Sarah Farrell, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You know, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've, it's been really cool listening to your perspectives on this stuff. Hope everybody else has really enjoyed this talk. And again, I want to thank both of you for setting up some time to speak with us today. So thank, thank you. Guys. My pleasure. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed Sarah and Farrell's conversation with Sean. One of many things that stuck with me from this panel discussion was when Sarah Keating said, we all need to own, live, and breathe sustainability to do it. We can't say, okay, that company or that team's gonna take care of it, because it won't really happen if we ourselves don't embody it and support it as well. If you've learned and gained insights from this podcast, don't forget to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Also, follow or subscribe from whatever platform you're listening in so you never miss an episode. Tune in next week where design consultancy founders Gregor Mittersink of Loft, Marco Perry of Pensa, Louis Alt of Live Work Brazil, and Phnom Bagley of Nonfiction talk about guiding businesses through change. Goodbye.